I want to turn our attention now to the Word of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, uh, we're in the middle of a, of a joyous and uplifting study of uh, this very light book known as Ecclesiastes. No, it's, it, this, this, is a, this, is a, um, this is a deep dive, however you look at it. Uh, and uh, this morning is particularly a deep dive. Our, our study is called Life is Hevel or Hevel, depending on how you, how you want to pronounce the Hebrew um, letter that's in that word. Uh, and uh, the word Hevel means uh, vanity, empty, uh, without meaning, pointless. Again, it should be an uplifting study this morning. Um, why are we looking at this? Well, for several reasons. Um, but one of the big ones is that we live in a culture, we swim uh, in a culture that has this sense of hopelessness about it, that it's not really adding up to anything. Uh, the American author T.C. Boyle, perhaps some of you are familiar with him, did an interview with The Guardian uh, a few years ago. And this is what he said. Science has killed religion. There's no hope for the future with seven billion of us on the planet. And the only thing you can do is to laugh in the face of it all. And you see that message over and over again, uh, meaning whatever, you just gotta you know, enjoy yourself while you can, and then you're gonna die. Now I'd imagine most people in this room don't agree with that statement, um, but you swim in it every day. And it has a way of causing you to ask questions is what I believe really true? To look over your shoulder at what the world is, is saying. So this exploration, it's not just about understanding how we can engage a culture that's living in hopelessness to speak persuasively about the hope we have in Jesus Christ. It's about us too. And reassuring us of the fact that in Christ, there is hope. We need it. We need meaning. We need significance. So this this, this passage that we have in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 goes right at that sense of desperation that our culture has and that sometimes that we have. And, and it points out that indeed, in some ways, the world is right. Uh, as we think about our pursuits, whether it's education and wisdom or, or pleasure and happiness or accomplishments in business and technology, if we stop and think about them, what do they really gain us? Do they mean something? Or is everything pointless? You ready for the deep dive? All right, we're going to start. We're going to focus on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, but we're going to start with uh, one verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding, um, guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. What he's saying there is, look, I'm, I'm grabbing hold of these things, but I'm still trying to analyze it. I'm still trying to keep my wits about me. 
And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and all this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And then verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet... I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun. Into verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 22. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Ooh, I love that word. And then there's this turn that's kind of hard to understand, but we'll we'll talk about it. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This seems 180 degrees out of phase in what he just said. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases, pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, oh, this passage, boy, it leaves us in a hard place, and we, we, and we need to pray. We need you. Father, we ask that your spirit would be with us, even as the spirit has been with us during our time of worship. Now give us wisdom by your spirit to understand this passage, that we might understand how we might live life differently than the world, a world that is without hope. See Help, see, help us see how we might live with hope and therefore find satisfaction in you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. There's a high school student who spends years training as a wrestler, uh, disciplining his body, uh, engaging in very physical matches. He advances to the state tournament and there he wins the state match the referee, raises his hand to declare him the champion, and what he feels in that moment is emptiness. A young woman, uh, she gives birth to a baby girl, she pours her life into this child, she forgoes a career, she makes many sacrifices, uh, passes up many opportunities, and as that child grows older, uh, the daughter becomes cold and distant, and she rejects her mother. A middle-aged professional 
spends years building a career in hopes of the respect that comes along with it, building a nest egg, retire, early retirement. And he accomplishes all those things and he finds retirement boring. You know, we spend a lot of time, energy, there's hard work, there's sacrifices for a certain goal, for a certain end. And sometimes we're able to realize that. And, and it, it, as we get them, those things realized, putting our hope in them, uh, what we often experience is emptiness and disappointment. And we might think to ourselves, all this hard work, all this energy, all these years, it was pointless. And sometimes that simple thought begins to infect every part of our lives. If this was pointless, if one of the major things in my life was pointless, maybe everything is pointless, meaningless. And I would say most of us in this room, if not every last one of us, has had a moment like that. What am I doing? What's the meaning in this? What's the point? And so the sermon this morning, typically what we do is whether it's me or Tom or somebody else, <clears throat> we say, hey, here's this idea and we're gonna try and persuade you of this idea, the sermon and the sentence, but we're not gonna do that this morning. We're gonna start with a question and explore it together this morning. How do we find meaning? How do we find satisfaction, significance in this life? That's the question that the preacher, um, uh, the Hebrew word is quoaleth, I tend to call him Q in my head, uh, but the, what it means preacher, the one who's writing the book, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he asks this question. What's the point of it all? Can we find meaning? And he begins to pursue different avenues in hopes of finding an answer. First, the preacher explores understanding and wisdom, then he moves on to, uh, to pleasure and folly, things we might say are experience. You know, he's trying to, you know, enjoy life, the experience of life. And then finally, he, he, he contemplates the idea of accomplishment, of, of work. Uh, maybe we can find meaning there. But really, really, we could group all of these things under one heading, looking for significance in ourselves and what we do, our efforts. The, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, this is life under the sun. And what he's trying to say there is that uh, this is life without God. Or maybe a better way to say it is life lived dependent not on God, but on myself. And so if that's the case, this message isn't just for people who don't claim Christ, it's, it's for us. Because how many of us, we come on a Sunday morning and we sing praise to God and then a Monday morning we're back to saying, okay, I gotta trust myself now. I'm the one who gets it done. And in the midst of that, of living that way, we begin to ask the question, what's the point of what I'm doing? We swim in the waters of a culture that has given up on God. We say we haven't given up on God, but do we, but do we live that way? Do we live as functional atheists? Can we find meaning in our own pursuits? Let's start with the first one. Can we find meaning in understanding? And the Hebrew word that's used there is talking about not, 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 not wisdom in the sense of the Proverbs, but, but knowledge, uh, knowing things. Can I know enough, understand the mechanisms of life in the universe such that it will give me satisfaction? Education. You know, we're a very educated country in the United States. We are the sixth most educated nation in the world. Now, some of you are like, what do you mean sixth? We should be number one. 
Well, we're not, but we're still pretty good. Number six, by the way, Canada is number one. And I don't know why, but that somehow bothers me. I don't know why. <laughs> my apologies to any of my Canadian brothers and sisters. Um, but we're a very educated country. You know, not, almost 90% of our population either has a high school diploma or a GED. Um, 33% of the people in America have a bachelor's degree. 12% have higher degrees. And I would imagine in this room, it, the, 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 the percentages are even higher. American institutions produce more PhDs recipients than any other country on the planet. And, you know, we take pride in our academic accomplishments. But does it give us meaning? Does it satisfy us? There was a study published in the British Journal of Psychology and found the uh, and, and looked at the odds of happiness among uh, all the uh, levels of academic attainment. So what do you think? Do you think that the more educated are more likely to be happy? What are your thoughts? No. Well, I'm asking the question in the sermon, so you're like, oh, well, I'm sure the answer is no. Uh, it's the same across all academic achievement levels. The odds of being happy are the same. And in fact, there are some studies that show that PhD, PhD students are far more, far more likely to develop psychiatric disorders than their general population. Now, some of that has to do with uh, the demanding uh, and rigorous environment of academia. Some of it has to do with the high debt and the low pay that comes along with those degrees. Um, but what it, one thing it does make clear is that greater knowledge does not bring satisfaction. And in fact, it can weary the mind and the body. Ecclesiastes 1, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now we might ask the question, how can that be? How can increased knowledge bring more sorrow? Well, I want you to consider what I call the circle of knowledge. Imagine a circle, and inside that circle is everything we know. And, uh, and then there's a black background, okay? So there's the black background. Those are the things that we don't know that we don't know, otherwise called ignorance. And ignorance is bliss. It's all kinds of things I don't even know I don't know. And I'm, I'm fine not knowing them. But we do start knowing things, you know? Uh, there's a circle now. And there, so we can, if we can go to the, to the circle, there's, there's what we know. And the edge of the circle is what we know we don't know. Things we have an awareness of but don't fully understand, maybe like our personal budgets. You know, we, we kind of sort of are aware of it, but we haven't wrapped our heads and hearts around it and, it, and it causes us frustration and vexation. Sometimes the things that we're aware of but don't understand cause great fear. So what happens as knowledge grows? Is it already the, the, big, the big circle? There we go. So we know more but what else? The edge gets bigger. What we know we don't know gets bigger. And so a source of frustration and anxiety and fear also grows. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more I know, the more frustrated I am. Um, later in the book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the writer says this, of the making of books, there is no end and much Study is a weariness of the flesh. I, I, can keep, I can study and I study and I study and it doesn't end. Somebody's always writing a new book, you know. Um, 
And it, and it makes me tired even thinking about it. Sometimes knowledge is unpleasant. Let me give you a very practical example. What is this? What is it? It's a hot dog. Do you want to know what this hot dog is made of? <laughs> oh, knowledge brings vexation. I don't want to know what's in that. The learned might respond though, ah, but uh, understanding would tell you, tell us that the hot dog is not healthy. Uh, you'll live longer uh, if, if you eat healthier, to which the ignorant person replies, um, but you're still going to die the same as I am. And right now I'm enjoying this hot dog and you aren't. That's what's at the heart of the, this, the passage in verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to, to all of them. Verse, uh, verse 16, for, the wise, for, the wise as of, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. There's some marginal benefit in knowing things, but the end's the same. Knowing things will not give me ultimate meaning, satisfaction. It won't keep me from dying eventually. There will never be satisfaction in knowledge and understanding. And so it's disappointing. Well, what about pleasure? What about experience? You know, things that I can enjoy. Um, the preacher also says, well, I'm going to pursue that route. He pulls back from the futility of wisdom to lose himself in indulgence and in pleasure. Verse 1 says, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then verse 10, uh, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. If I saw it and I liked it, I took it. I enjoyed it. He denied himself nothing. Uh, there was a time when I pursued some of that. Um, at my first semester in college at art school, I, I pursued my dream. I so desperately wanted to be involved with creating things, things of beauty. Uh, um, I was also very interested in comic books. I wanted to be a comic book artist. And I went to art school and I crashed and burned. Oh, it was terrible. And so I did whatever that I did, whatever my mom wanted me, my mom and dad wanted me to do. And they had me transfer to a, a school where there was an engineering program. And that's my degree. But the other thing about the school is uh, they knew how to party there. Uh, so um, I transferred to that school and I threw myself into partying on the weekends. I kept my wisdom during the week I, and disciplined and, you know, I got good grades. But boy, I really dove in on the weekends I was hoping to escape my disillusionment, my heartbreak. And at the end of that semester, and examining the toll it took on my body, I, I woke up on, on a Saturday morning before finals, uh, after a hard night of drinking, feeling a lot like Han Solo did after he was tortured at the hands of Darth Vader. <laughs> I feel terrible. <laughs> I, I remember it well. I feel terrible. 
what am I doing to myself? Why am I doing this? This is not getting me anywhere. It doesn't have to be the experience of partying. It can be anything that gives you a thrill, a sense of escape, a charge that helps you rise above the, uh, the specter, the anxiety of our mortality and our frustrations in life. Sometimes it's drugs. Sometimes it's sex. Maybe it's music or sports. It might even be binge watching on Netflix. Okay? If for a time it brings us pleasure or it numbs the pain or both, but soon we have, we have a hangover from it. And we have the shame of uh, the way we've debased ourselves or wasted our resources and time and idleness. And we find that it solved nothing. It's disappointing. Okay, we haven't exhausted all our avenues yet. What about accomplishment? We'll go down that path. Can we find significance there? And we ask ourselves, what should we, to what should we apply our energies? Maybe, maybe, maybe curing cancer, that would be great, right? A lot of notoriety, we could help a lot of people. Uh, it's very exciting. In fact, there's, some, there's, there's a discovery in, uh, in, in England, and, and it's, it's possible that they may have found, they may have found the cure for cancer. That's awesome. Well, maybe we could, we, we could apply our energies to the idea of life extension, uh, living beyond the 125-year boundary that, that uh, our experience in science seems to, to say that we have. We could, maybe we could live to 200 or 250 or maybe forever. Maybe we should apply our energies to advancements in technology. You know, my father wanted me to be a person of accomplishment, but he didn't particularly care what it was. He, the only thing he wanted me to accomplish was to do better than him. But it was still something. And there can be a measure of satisfaction in our toil. There can be benefits to other people. But, but the preacher found ultimately that this self-directed toil, see, I've accomplished something. See, I've made, my, I've made something of myself that actually it really was empty. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had ex- expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was empty because it was about self. It was vanity, it w- and it wasn't lasting. You know, there's always something else to be, to be done. No matter what we accomplish, how big it is, there's always going to be something else. I start most days, I don't know if you're like this, but I start most days with a list. I, I take out a scrap piece of paper, things I got to do today. I got to do this, 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 and sometimes the list is really long, sometimes not so long, and some days are frustrating. I only get one thing crossed off the list, maybe none, and then there's the days when I cross everything off the list. I'm like, whoa, this, is a, this was a good day. And I go home, Mary asked me, how was your day? And I said, it was productive. I got this done, I got this done. I mean, it was awesome. And I feel great. Until the next morning when I have another list that I have to get done. I, I think that there is profound wisdom in an unmade bed. Because if I make that bet, no matter how many times I make that bet, the next day, I'd have to make it again. There's no gain for me under the sun. I won't gain anything. It'll just, I'll just come right back to the beginning, more to do, more lists, more things left undone, and then I will pass the way of all flesh and be forgotten. 
just like Jack Kilby and Bill Noyce. You know them, right? You know those men, right? No? Those two men invented the silicon microchip. They revolutionized modern society. You have several on your person right now. You definitely have a phone. We wouldn't have this if it wasn't for them. And they didn't die all that long ago. And almost everybody in this room had no idea who they were. Finding meaning in our accomplishments will ultimately be disappointing. And the point the preacher is making is not simply that these three avenues, whether it's accomplishment or, uh, or pleasure or, or, or learning, are dead ends. Everything's a dead end. He, he's basically saying it's these things and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everything, all of life under the sun is disappointing. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's not going to work. Nothing works. And the preacher kind of grabs a hold of this idea and starts turning towards despair. He writes in verse 17, so I hated life. Man, that's a powerful statement. I, I, I looked at it, I looked, wrapping my heart and head around it, and it was, it was loathsome. I hated it. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity is striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So, is that it? Is that the end of our investigation? Is there any way to find satisfaction? And the answer is no. Is, is Boyle right when he said earlier about life that the only thing we can do in the face of life is to, is to laugh at it? The preacher despaired of self, of looking to himself, but despair was not his conclusion. We can't find meaning in and of ourselves. We can't find lasting meaning there, partly because we're not designed for that, and partly because God also intentionally built frustration into life. What? God intentionally is frustrating us? Yes. Romans 8, 20 and following says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is God hoping for? The world was given over to corruption because of the fall. It was broken because of what we did and we were lost. And the last thing God wants us to feel is satisfaction in the midst of all that. So he subjected the creation to futility in the hopes that we will abandon these idols of, of self-satisfaction and we'll seek him out, the very source of our life. Ecclesiastes 3, Tom's gonna to be talking more about this next week, but Ecclesiastes 3.11, 3, the, the, the preacher says this, he, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. God has set eternity into the heart of every person in this room, a sense of the infinite, a sense of the divine, and we long for fellowship with it. We only find satisfaction in connection with the infinite and the divine. 
Augustine of Hippos wrote this in his great work, Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And it's that connection that transforms our relationship, not simply with God, but also with wisdom and with pleasure and with, uh, with toil. And this is the point that, that the writer of Ecclesiastes makes when he makes that turn. After saying that toil and pleasure are dead ends, the preacher writes something that seems, again, 180 degrees out of phase with it. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And we go, we want to say, what? Didn't you just say that you hated your toil? Continuing on in verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Why can't we find satisfaction in and of ourselves? Again, we're not designed for it. And number two, God won't let us because he loves us. Instead, we find significance and meaning and satisfaction, not in what we do, but by participating in what God is doing, by giving our learning, even our enjoyment, and certainly our toil over to him and his purposes. What is God doing? God is redeeming and restoring the creation. You know, he gave us an original work. He put us in the garden and he said, take that awesome, wonderful garden and cultivate it. Turn it into a great city. And that's the great city that we see at the end of Revelation. However, Entrusting it to us, we mucked it up, okay? It all went sideways. But God was, was not about to abandon us or his purposes in and through us. And so he sent Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he is restoring all things. As, as he says in Revelation 21, behold, I make all things new. All things. Not just a soul, but a person and a family and a community and a city, and a nation, a world. That's God's mission. So as we have understanding of God's work, of love and renewal, we can find meaning by participating in that work, a work that has eternal value. Uh, The work of changing diapers and making beds has meaning because as we care probably we're doing it for, for our children, we are building into our children the knowledge that they are made in the image of God and worthy of care and concern. We are not raising rugrats. We are raising princes and princesses of the celestial kingdom. And there's eternal value in that. The study of physical therapy has meaning as we not only relieve suffering in this life, but point to the ultimate Uh, relief of suffering, the ultimate healing in the resurrection. And the enjoyment of each other has meaning, pleasure, even intimacy has meaning as we receive them from the hand of God as good gifts, things we can enjoy and be reminded, be taught that God is good. You have a good father who gives you good things. It all has meaning if it's understood in relation to God 
It's in him and by what comes from, his fan, comes from his hand that we find satisfaction. Now, I'll admit, it's incomplete in this life, so we will continue to experience frustration, but we can know it really and truly. This might be hard to get your heart and mind around, but there's this story, not original with me, about stonecutters, and I think, I think it can help us here. There was a traveler who came up... Uh, across three individuals working uh, uh, with stone, stone cutters. And the traveler was curious as to what they were doing, so he went to ask them. He, he approached the first worker and he said, what are you doing? And the guy looked up, sort of, sort of a grimace on his face. I'm a stone cutter. What do you think I'm doing? I'm cutting a stone. Well, that was some information, but didn't really answer the question the traveler had. Where was this going? What, what, what are you doing overall? So he goes to the next worker and he says, what are you doing? And the man looks up and says, well, I'm a stone cutter and I'm cutting the stone because it earns me a wage. And so I can support my family. And that was, you know, a, a, a fuller answer, but still uh, didn't get at, at what the traveler wanted to know. So we went to the third worker and he said, what are you doing? And stopping for a moment, the worker looked at his stone and then looked up at him with a smile on his face and he said, I'm building a cathedral. Life under the sun, if we focus on the task and how it benefits me, gives me meaning and significance, it's like focusing simply on cutting the stone. We will never know satisfaction if we learn for learning's sake. We will never know satisfaction if we seek pleasure for pleasure's sake or to escape some other hurt. We will never know satisfaction if we work to say, see what I've accomplished. But when we focus upon God and what he's doing and how he's calling on us to join in that work, we will see ourselves as part of the most epic and majestic work imaginable that will last into eternity. That's satisfying. Pray with me that we would all learn to find our satisfaction there. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this word and we do pray. Oh, that while you've given us work to enjoy, help us from turning it into an idol. Help us to understand the proper bounds of pleasure and not to seek it as our God. Father, teach us to find our rest in you because only in connection with the eternal, the divine, the infinite, will we know joy. Work that in us, we pray, for our good and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.